it's a farmer's son who was driving a horse-drawn wagon full of corn and this wagon turned over on a country dirt road and the farmer's son was trying to turn the wagon back over and it was a big job to turn this wagon back over all by himself. His neighbor, Mr. Anderson, sees him out here trying to turn this wagon back over and he comes over to see if he can help. Now, Mr. Anderson was known as the biggest procrastinator in the community. So Mr. Anderson comes out and says, that's a big job for one person to do. Let me help you with that. Well, I sure would appreciate that, Mr. Anderson. But then Mr. Anderson, being the procrastinator that he is, he then says, well, we can't do this on an empty stomach. It's almost dinner time. The missus almost has dinner ready. Why don't you come on in and eat some dinner with me? And after that, then I'll come out and I'll help you get this wagon turned back over. Well, the farmer's son replies, I don't think that my pa would want me to do that, Mr. Anderson. I think my pa would want me to get this wagon turned back over right now. Oh, your pa wouldn't want you to work empty stomach, would he? Come on in and have some dinner with us, and after that, I'll come help you turn the wagon over. So the farmer's son finally relents and goes inside and eats a big old dinner with, a, with Mr. Anderson and his missus. And after dinner... He wants to get back out and get this wagon turned back over, and he's anxious to do this, so he says, Mr. Anderson, let's go and and turn this wagon back over. But then Mr. Anderson, being the procrastinator that he is, he then says, well, your pa wouldn't want you to work on a full stomach. We need to sit here and let our food digest for a little while. After we have a little conversation, then I'll come and help that wagon back over. Well, I don't think my pa would want me to do that, Mr. Anderson. I think pa would want me to turn this wagon over right now. No, your pa wouldn't want you to work on a full stomach. Just sit and digest a little bit. So they have a little bit of conversation. All the while, the farmer's son is getting more and more anxious about turning this wagon back over. So finally, the farmer's son can't wait any longer. And he says, Mr. Anderson, I just got to go turn this wagon over right now, with or without you. Will you come help me? All right, let's go turn this wagon back over. I don't know why your pa is such a slave driver, son. By the way, where is your pa? My pa is under the wagon. So when they finally got the wagon turned back over, Paul probably wasn't too happy with the two procrastinators, was he? But we can associate, we can identify with Mr. Anderson in that story, can't we? Because all of us procrastinate what we don't want to do, don't we? It is, it is part of being human in our fallen condition is that we procrastinate things that we want, don't want to do. Our passage today is about procrastination. As you might guess, it's about spiritual procrastination. We're in Acts chapter 24 this morning. As you're finding Acts chapter 24, let me just kind of remind us of where we're at in the Acts story. Paul has returned back to Jerusalem after this long two-year gathering of this offering for the Jerusalem church. He has the goal of church unity in mind. He knows that the relationship between the Jerusalem church and the Gentile church is not very good. So he thinks that this offering will help to bring unity in the church. So he collects this offering, brings it back to Jerusalem. However, he arrives in Jerusalem and finds out that things are much worse even than what he thought they were. He finds out that the church in Jerusalem has a great deal of animosity towards him. In fact, that the church in Jerusalem is rejecting Paul because Paul is preaching a gospel of free grace. The Jerusalem Christians coming from a strong Orthodox Jewish background, they are bringing into Christianity a sense of works, works righteousness, and the more heavily someone is invested in works, the more they will reject a gospel of grace. And so the Jerusalem Christians are rejecting Paul and his message of grace. And so Paul does this hard thing of the purification ceremony and sponsoring these two uh, Nazarite vow 
uh, individuals. He does this hard thing with the goal of reconciliation, with the goal of church unity in mind. However, it backfires. And not only now are the Jewish Christians upset with Paul, now the Jews in Jerusalem are upset with Paul. This big riot breaks out. Some of the Jews from Asia, the Ephesian Jews, they see Paul coming out of the temple. And just a day or two earlier, they'd seen him with a fellow named Trophimus, who was, the, was an Ephesian Gentile. And so they assume that Paul has taken Trophimus into the temple and defiled the temple in this way. And so they get really upset about this, and this big riot breaks out, and they begin beating Paul literally. Luke says trying to beat him to death. He's rescued by the Roman tribune. And then he makes great friends with this Roman tribune. He connects with him in a real personal way. And because he connects with the Roman tribune in a personal way, the tribune then goes on to save Paul's life not once, twice, but four times he saves Paul's life. The final time that he saves his life was the most dramatic of all. They learn of this plot to assassinate Paul. Paul's nephew hears about this plot. The Sanhedrin is going to call for Paul to question him some more. And while the Romans are bringing him, these assassins are going to assassinate him in the street. However, Paul's nephew learns of this They let the tribune know about it, and the tribune ushers Paul out of Jerusalem under cover of darkness, his second nighttime escape. He's he's ushered out of town under heavy Roman guard to Caesarea. And along with Paul, he sends a letter that explains the whole situation. Now, Paul has arrived in Caesarea, and this is where we'll pick up our story in chapter 24, verse 1. We'll be looking at the whole of chapter 24 this morning. So beginning in verse 1, you want to have your sermon notes handy as we look at verse 1. Verse 1, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. Now we remember in the letter that, uh, that Lysias, the tribune, writes to Felix, the governor of the Syrian pro- uh, province of Rome, he writes a letter that says, I'm sending Paul to you and I'm going to send his accusers and they will plead their case before you and you can, trial, you can put uh, Paul on trial and you can judge his guilt or innocence. I'm sending his accusers. So his accusers have now arrived in Caesarea. And we're reminded once again of just the level of hatred that the Jews have towards Paul in his gospel of grace. Because they will stop at nothing to put the smack down on Paul. The Jewish elders, not only did the elders make this 65-mile journey to Caesarea, but the high priest himself journeys 65 miles to Caesarea to make sure that they do everything that they can to get rid of this man, Paul. That's the level of hatred that they have towards him and his gospel of grace. So they arrive, and they also have this other fellow that's that's called uh, Tertullus. He's called a spokesman or a lawyer is what he is. Now the name Tertullus was a Roman name, so he was probably a Roman lawyer hired by the Jewish Sanhedrin to plead their case in a Roman court. So being in a Roman court under Roman law, They think that it would be a smart idea to hire a Roman lawyer to plead their case, which was not uncommon in that day to do this. So this man Tertullus is the lawyer that's hired to be the prosecuting attorney against the Apostle Paul. So he shows up here in uh, in the court of of Felix, the Roman governor in the the district of Syria. And so they laid before the governor the case of Paul. In verse 2, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him saying, and now he's going to plead his case against Paul. There's going to be three accusations that they have against Paul that he's going to detail for them. He says, uh, when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you, speaking to Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. So we see right away 
that he's going to begin with some heavy-duty flattery. He's going to try to flatter Felix into giving a favorable judgment to him. He says, under you, Felix, we have enjoyed peace and prosperity. And nothing could have been further from the truth. Felix, as we mentioned before, Felix was an extraordinarily cruel Roman governor. He was known as the crucifying governor. He crucified more Jews than any other Roman governor in the history of the Roman Empire when it ruled over Israel, all the way up to the final battle with Rome in 70 AD. Felix was the most crucifying governor that they had. He was cruel, he was inhumane, and there was peace under his rule, but it was a peace by way of fear. Under his rule, there were more rebellions, there were more riots, there were more uprisings than under any other governor. So the fact that Tertullus is saying to Felix, under you we have enjoyed peace. Well, not only is that flattery, it's just an outright lie. Under you we have enjoyed reforms. Another lie. Because Felix cared nothing about the Jewish people. There were no reforms that he put into place to help them in any way whatsoever. And so he's flattering Felix, trying to get this favorable judgment from him. Uh, Verse 3, But in every way, everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Verse 4, But to detain you no further, I beg you in in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him, you yourself will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. So there's his three charges. Charge number one is that he's the ringleader of this sect called the Nazarenes, or what we would call Christians. The sect of the Nazarenes, probably connected to the fact that Jesus was known as a Nazarene. And so that's the first charge, is he's the leader of these Christians. Secondly, he's a troublemaker. Everywhere he goes, he creates trouble. He riots, follow him everywhere he goes. Which is, there's some truth to that, as we've seen already in the story of Acts. Wherever Paul goes, riots seem to break out. Only he's not the instigator of these riots. So everywhere he goes, he, he riots, and also he even tried to profane the temple. So three charges against Paul, two of those are very serious, and if they are able to stick, then Paul is in a world of hurt. The charge, first of all, that he's the ringleader of the Nazarenes, but then secondly, the charge against him that he's a troublemaker, that he is a riot creator, he's a, a rebel, he's a rebellious person. The Roman Empire took that sort of thing extraordinarily seriously. The Roman Empire was not about to tolerate any unrest, any protests, any riots anywhere within their, within their empire. The Romans were famous for squashing all rebellions, all protests against them in all of their kingdoms. We've already seen several times in the story of Acts how quickly the Romans are to react with extraordinary force Whenever a riot is about to break out. Remember when Paul was in Ephesus and everybody was protesting against, against the revival that had taken place in, in, uh, in Ephesus. And then everybody's worried, wait a minute, if the Romans hear about this, we're in trouble. Because the Roman soldiers, when they heard about a riot in the streets, they didn't care who started it, they just sent in their soldiers to start cracking heads. And so the fact that if Paul is accused of being a, a troublemaker, one that instigates riots, then that would have been a very serious charge in the Roman Empire, especially for Felix. Remember, Felix is among the cruelest of all the Roman governors. He was known, again, as the crucifying governor. He would have taken that extraordinarily seriously. So that's the second charge. The third charge, 
was that Paul had profaned the temple by bringing a Gentile into the inner area of the temple. That also would have been a very serious charge if it could, if it could be made to stick. Because the Romans had given the Jews the authority to enforce their laws governing their temple. And so the Romans had given the Jews the ability to enforce their restriction on Gentiles coming into the inner area of the temple. So if that charge was able to stick, then Felix would have had no choice but to give Paul over to the Sanhedrin council for them to punish Paul as they saw fit, which would have meant that he would have been stoned. So if either of those two charges can stick, Paul is in a world of trouble here uh, already. So... He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him, verse 8, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So, it appears that Paul is, uh, that things are not going very well for Paul in this trial. It seems as though that it's a rather open and shut case against Paul. These three charges, two of them very serious, have been brought against him by this Roman lawyer. And not only that, but there's this whole chorus of Jewish elders there, one of whom is the high priest. And they are all echoing agreement. Yes, this is all true. And as soon as you examine him, you'll see for yourself that this is all true. So it seems as though it's an open and shut case against the Apostle Paul. However, we've yet to hear the other side of it. You ever heard one side of a story, and it seems as though things are one way until you hear the other side? You know, you hear one side of a person's story and you're thinking, oh, that's so terrible. That's so, I can't believe that happened to you. I can't believe that person said that. I can't believe you were mistreated in that way. And then you hear the other side of the story and then you're like, okay, now I see a different picture until you hear the other side of the story. It's, it's interesting that the Scriptures teach us to reserve judgment. We have heard both sides. Proverbs 18, verse 13 tells us, one man's way seems right until we examine the other one. And so, Scripture tells us to reserve judgment until we've heard both sides. Felix, likewise, will reserve judgment until he's heard Paul's side. So now, beginning verse 10, and when, these, when the governor had nodded to him, to Paul, to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul's going to be very respectful, but he's not going to be a flatterer like Tertullus was. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. So Paul says, this is verifiable. I was only in Jerusalem for 12 days. Now, that, that's important because 12 days would not have been a sufficient amount of time for Paul to, get, to put together a rebellion. And, and Paul says, you can confirm this. You can confirm when I arrived in Jerusalem. And that certainly wasn't enough time for me to get there and organize a rebellion like this. So I was only in Jerusalem 12 days. Um, and I went up to worship in Jerusalem, verse 12, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. In other words, um, these people who are accusing me of this, they did not find me instigating any riots at all. Verse 13, neither can they prove to you by what they now bring, the proof to you what they now bring up against me. The accusations against me, says Paul, are unprovable. They're unsubstantiable. Verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets. So, on the charge of being a Christian, Paul calls it the way. The sect of the Nazarenes is what they call it. But on that charge, I'm guilty. Yes, I'm, I'm a leader among Christians. But 
Paul goes on to say that's no offense because we believe the same things they believe. We believe in the law. We believe in the prophets. We worship the God of our fathers. Verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So notice what Paul has done. The same thing he did when he was before the Sanhedrin. In fact, this is the same thing he will do every time he stands trial in the, in the entire book of Acts. As he will immediately go to the resurrection. For Paul, everything hinges on the resurrection. Everything. Like he'll say to the Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, everything you've believed is false. If Christ has not been raised, everything you believed is untrue. You are still dead in your sins, and everything is false. But Christ has been raised. So Paul hangs everything on the resurrection. The same thing he does when he's on trial is he hangs everything on the resurrection. Now he does this because, of course, the Pharisees that are there to accuse him, they also believe in the resurrection. The resurrection was not a New Testament idea. You see in your sermon notes from Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, that the resurrection of all people, just and unjust, is taught in the Old Testament. So the Pharisees believe in this resurrection as all. The, the difference, though, between what Paul believes and what the Pharisees believe is that Paul believes that the resurrection has begun. Like I say to the Corinthians, that Christ has been raised and He is the first fruits of the resurrection. In other words, the Pharisees believe in a resurrection of the future, Paul believes that the resurrection of the future has begun with Christ. But they both believe in the resurrection. Now the resurrection is important for Paul because the resurrection, and the Pharisees understand this, the resurrection means judgment. The resurrection is not a a resurrection of, of only God's people, it's a resurrection of all people. Resurrection to judgment. And so that's the important part that Paul is getting at. We'll, We'll come back to that a little bit later. But he hangs everything on the resurrection. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. In other words, Paul brings his defense back to his life witness. Every time Paul defends himself in the book of Acts, he will always speak of his life witness. He does this in uh, chapter 23 before the Sanhedrin, chapter 24 before Felix. He'll do the same thing in chapter 26 before Agrippa. He will always speak of the blameless way in which he lives his life. In other words, his life witness is an important part of the defense of the Gospel. And isn't it interesting that Jesus purposely and intentionally put it that way? Jesus intentionally said, my reputation on earth will hinge on your life witness. How I am known on this earth will depend on how you live your life. We remember the words of Jesus in John 12 when He says, you will be known by your love for one another. In other words, that's how people will recognize My disciples from everything else, is by your love. Your life witness is what determines My my reputation among people. Or He gets even more explicit. This is in your sermon notes on Matthew chapter 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, non-believers will see your light, they will see how you live your life, and non-believers will glorify God. 
When was the last time a non-believer glorified God by watching your life? Or our life? But that's the way Jesus made it. He intentionally said, my reputation hangs on your life witness. And so Paul repeatedly will draw attention to his life witness. Chapter 18, with the Ephesian elders. He calls attention to his life witness. Virtually every epistle he writes, he calls attention to his life witness. So he said, again in verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. That was the offering that he collected for the, for the, for the Jewish church, for the Jerusalem church. Verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they sought to, they, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation or they should have nothing against me. In other words, Paul's, yes, there was a riot. I wasn't the one that caused it. But the ones who said that I profaned the temple aren't even here. Remember, who was it that said that he profaned the temple? It was the Asian Jews, the Jews from Ephesus. They were the ones who recognized Trophimus because he was an Ephesian too. And they were the ones that caused the whole riot when they saw Paul coming out of the temple. And they're not even here. And so Paul says, the ones who supposedly saw me do this aren't even here. They ought to be here. If they have a charge against me, why are they not here? The whole case against Paul has now completely fallen apart. We thought it was an open and shut case a few verses ago, but now the whole thing has just completely fallen apart right before their eyes. It reminds us, doesn't it, of something that was said about Stephen back in chapter 6. You remember when Stephen finished his defense in chapter 6, verse 10? It was said, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which He was speaking. Jesus promised His disciples that when they drag you before kings and councils, don't worry about what you are to say. The Spirit will give you what to say in that moment. And this is exactly what's happened with Paul. The Spirit has given him what to say and the the case against him has completely fallen apart right before their their very eyes. Because the, the main charge that could be substantiated, the people aren't even here that supposedly saw that happen. Now verse 20, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. We talked about that when we were back in chapter 23. About how Paul brings up the resurrection because he sees that the council is both Sanhedrin and Pharisees and so he's going to create this dispute. Here he's sort of acknowledging that that probably wasn't the wisest way to go about that. But then, verse 22... Paul's now presented his defense. Tertullus has presented his prosecution. 22, beginning verse 22, is Felix's reaction to this. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. So somehow, Felix has come into contact with Christians before. And Luke even says he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. In other words, guys, your life witness is important. Felix has encountered Christians and he has seen their life witness and he's saying what I've experienced with Christians before doesn't seem to add up to what I'm being told about this one. He has an accurate knowledge of the way and that accurate knowledge through seeing the life witness of other Christians, we don't know who, through seeing their life he now suspects what he's being told about this one because it doesn't compute for him. 
He's seen Christians who have a life witness that is pure and holy and respectful of the government. And he's saying, this just doesn't seem to add up for this fellow right here. So this accurate knowledge of the way, this experience that he's had with Christians, tells him something doesn't quite smell right about this. Life witness is important. What they're telling me about this man, Paul, is that he's a troublemaker, he's anti-Roman government, and what I've experienced with other Christians just doesn't seem to add up. You know, this isn't the only time that Christians will be accused of being anti-government, government haters, government opposition. In fact, this is, this is an accusation against Christians throughout history. About 150 years after Paul, Christians were still being accused of, of being against the Roman Empire and against the government. And a, and a leader of the church in North Africa, a man by the name of Tertullian, is going to write a letter to the Roman emperor and he's going to say, if you want to find good citizens, look among the followers of Christ. It is there that you will find the best citizens. Christ's followers are not poor citizens. Christ's followers are not anti-government leadership. Jesus taught us that Himself. Even when the government is opposed to Christ, even when it's opposed to the Gospel, even when it treats us unfairly, Christ taught us that we submit and submit gladly to the institution of government that God created and gave to us. There's a disturbing trend that I see more and more among Christians, especially today. You know, Things in our country aren't exactly going very well right now. We're not exactly at an all-time high of trusting our government. And I hear more and more Christians going the way of government haters. To hate everything about the government, everything about what it's doing, and everybody that's in it. Christ followers are not government haters. Not the same thing as saying that we agree with the policies of our government or even the people in our government. But it is a different matter to hate government and disapprove with how government is functioning. Make sure as you follow Christ that you do not allow yourself to go down the path of being a government hater. Even Christ was not a government hater and they nailed Him to a piece of wood. So, Felix has this knowledge of the way and this knowledge tells him, listen, these Christians are not bad citizens. They're good citizens. So this is not adding up. Plus, the case has completely fallen apart. And so Felix, verse 22 knows what he should do. But he put them off. He procrastinates. He knows he needs to make a judgment and he knows what that judgment should be, but he procrastinates. Look how he does it. When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So why does Lysias need to come? He wrote the letter that told about what happened. Why does he need to wait for Lysias to come? And furthermore, there's no indication that Lysias ever came or was ever summoned. Paul's going to sit in Caesarea in prison for two more years. And don't you think if the Roman governor had summoned the tribune, he would have come? So, he completely puts this off. He completely procrastinates. Avoids making a judgment that he knows he should make. He knows that Paul is an innocent man and that he should be acquitted and released. However, he's going to keep him in prison. And you can even tell that he knows this is not the right thing to do. Look at verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So in other words, Paul, we're going to keep you in prison, but we're going to make it as little like prison as we can. Where's the justice in that, right? 
Felix knows that that's not what he should do, but he's trying to do it in, in as an amicable way as he possibly can. So he keeps Paul in custody. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. Now we begin to get to the meat of the story. Paul's in prison now, and Felix and his wife Drusilla come and they speak to Paul in prison about Christ. So let me just give a little bit of background about Felix and Drusilla, and then this story will be more meaningful to us then. Felix was the Roman governor of the province of Syria, and he is the only man in the history of the Roman Empire to go from being a slave to a ruler. No other person in Roman history went from being a slave to being a governor. Now we know in our Scriptures, we know of another person who went from being a slave to being a ruler, and that was Joseph. Now that happened for Joseph because he enjoyed the favor of God and because he had character. But this is not the case for Felix. Felix did not have character and he did not enjoy the favor of God. Felix went from being a slave to being a Roman governor because he knew the right people. He had a brother by the name of Pallas, which is like Dallas with a P, Pallas. And Pallas, his brother, had the good fortune of becoming good childhood friends with a man by the name of Claudius. Claudius goes on to be the emperor. And so Pallas asks Claudius for a favor. Give my brother Felix, my loser brother Felix, a job. Which he does. He makes him the Roman governor of Syria. So that's how he came to have power. He was not a good ruler. He was a very poor ruler. In fact, there was a saying that was often repeated during his time that Felix is an ex-slave that governs like he's still a slave. Again, he was cruel, inhumane, uh, inflexible, showed favoritism all over the place. He was a very poor ruler. Drusilla was his wife. She was his third wife. Um, his first two wives he put away just because he was bored with them. And so Drusilla is now married to him. Now Drusilla, we're told, was a Jewish, uh, was a Jewish woman. Her father was King Herod. Now, there's four Herods in the Bible. Her father was the King Herod of chapter 12. Remember that God struck him dead and he was eaten by worms. That was her father. So she was born Jewish, but she was not Jewish. She had deserted the faith, didn't practice her faith in any way. She was just born Jewish. And so uh, Felix was her second husband. Um, They had an illicit affair while both of them were still married to other people. But here's where it really gets bad. Drusilla is the wife of Felix because Felix bought her. Literally bought her. Gave her husband a huge bribe in order for him to put her away so that he could marry them. So, so that's the relationship that's going on here. Now, knowing that, look at how Paul reacts to them. Look at how Paul interacts with them. Rather, Verse 24, And after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla to Paul in prison. Drusilla was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. But look at what he says. Verse 25, And as he reasoned, there's Paul reasoning from the Scriptures again, reasoning from the Scriptures, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. What do you think Paul's talking to them about? Righteousness, which they have none. Self-control, which they have none. And the coming judgment. Paul doesn't just speak the Gospel to them. 
He applies it to them. He takes the red-hot, burning knife of the Gospel and He sticks it right on the open wound of the sin in their life. And if you think it's uncomfortable to point out the sins of other people, I would imagine it's doubly uncomfortable to do that with a person who can speak one word and end your life. Remember that happens to another person in Scripture. John the baptizer. He had some things to say about Drusilla's uncle, by the way. The other, another King Herod. He had some things to say about that King Herod and the illicit affairs in his life, and that ended up getting his head separated from his body at the shoulders. We talked last Sunday night about Thomas Ken, the writer of the doxology. How he had some things to say about King Charles II of England. It's doubly difficult to speak gospel truth, pinpointing the sins of others, especially when those people have the power over your life to end it or to not end it. Kind of like Jesus before Pilate, right? But Paul, John the Baptizer, Jesus, they, they nevertheless, they speak the gospel truth. So he speaks to them about righteousness and self control, both of which they obviously don't have. And he speaks to them about the coming judgment. That's why, folks, the resurrection was important. That's why Paul made sure that he brought up the resurrection. Because the resurrection means coming judgment. Felix is a powerful man. And the Scriptures show us that powerful men need to be confronted with the reality of the coming judgment. We see that consistently in the Scriptures. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is confronted with the coming judgment in his visions. You see in your sermon notes, Matthew 3 verse 7, John the baptizer confronts the Pharisees with the coming judgment. You see, continuing on even in the story of Acts, Acts chapter 10, Peter confronts Cornelius, a Roman man of power, with the coming judgment. You see in Acts chapter 17, Paul confronts the Athenians with the coming judgment. Scripture shows us that men of power need to be confronted with the reality of the coming judgment. Because you see, men of power appreciate power. They fancy themselves self-made people. And then they look upon those who are followers of Christ with contempt because they see them as weak, needing the crutch of religion to help them through their life. We hear people of power talk like that from time to time. They need the crutch of religion. And so powerful people are affected by the reality of the coming judgment. And this is how Paul will confront Felix with the reality of the coming judgment. Do you know any people of power in your life who need God? You probably don't know any Felixes. But I will assure you of this, you know people in your life that are far from God who think they have power over their own life who think that they are in control of their own destiny and their own future. And they need to be confronted with the reality of the coming judgment. And that's how Paul confronts Felix here with the reality of the coming judgment. And now let's take a look at the effect that it has on Felix. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed, shocked, convicted. Paul has taken the knife of the Gospel, applied it to the sin in his life, and Felix got it. 
He understood it. And he was convicted. The Spirit was at work in his heart. He was shocked. He was alarmed. He was convicted. The Spirit is doing its work in the heart of Felix. And now, how will Felix respond? And here's where we hit pay dirt in our passage this morning. How will Felix respond to the work of the Spirit? He was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Falls back onto his power. Go away, Paul. When I have time for this, I'll call you again. He procrastinates again, just like he did with the judgment of Paul. He's procrastinated once again. He knows what he needs to do, just like he knew what he needed to do in the trial. And yet he doesn't do it and he puts Paul off. Go away. I'll call for you later. He procrastinates. He puts it off. Here is the teaching of the lesson this morning. Luke is trying to show us that when the Spirit of God works in our heart, bringing truth into our minds, into our understanding, there is only two things that can be done. It can be received and acted upon, or it can be rejected and taken away. When the Spirit of God works in our hearts to convict us, to alarm us as He does for Felix, to instruct us, to show us, to point out areas in our life in which we need to obey, or perhaps He's working in our our life for salvation, but He brings truth into our understanding. We either act upon it, or it's taken away. There are no no, no other opportunities. And when it's taken away, our heart is hardened by that. Remember the story of Pharaoh? As he's confronted again and again by Moses, and each time... He rejects the truth that is given to him and each time he gets harder and harder and harder to the point that he then is calloused enough that he can resist all ten of the plagues. When we do not act upon the truth that the Spirit gives to us, that truth is taken away and we are then as a result. Look in the passage at how Felix became even more hardened after this. Look at verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that, Paul, that money would be given him by Paul. So somehow, he now thinks that Paul is going to bribe him to get out of prison. We were already told that Felix had enough of an understanding about Christians to know that they weren't that kind of people. And now he thinks he's, he's become so hard now that he thinks Paul is going to actually bribe him to get out of prison. So he sent for him and often conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius. Festus, and deciding to do those Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison for two years. So, he just lets Paul sit there in prison. would have let him sit in prison longer if he wasn't taken out of office. So you see how rejection of the truth that he's given leads to hardness of his heart. That's what the Scriptures teach us. When the Word of God acts upon us and brings conviction, brings feelings of conviction, we either act upon that or it's taken away. The Word of God does not come to us with an expiration date of two months in the future. And we can say, all right, I know I need to act on that, but I'm going to put it on the shelf right here. I'm busy with some other things. I need to get around to doing that, but just not right now. God doesn't work that way. If we don't act on it then, it's taken away. Look at the words of Jesus as He speaks to us from Luke 12, verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given of Him, much will be required. In other words, when the truth of God comes to us, it comes with a requirement. And that requirement is that we act on it. But then look at what he says in Matthew 25. It gets even more direct and more explicit here. In Matthew 25, the context here is the parable of the wicked servants. 
Remember the three servants, each of them were given some of their master's money. The master goes away. Two of them use the master's money for profit. A third one doesn't do anything with it, puts it in a hole in the backyard. The master comes back and says, you wicked servant, you did nothing with what I gave you. Therefore, Jesus says, even what you have will be taken away. And the others who have, more will be given to them. And even what you have will be removed from you. When the truth of Scripture comes to us, we either act upon it or it's taken away. And if it's taken away, that means definite spiritual danger. There's a story from the American Revolution of George Washington's crossing of the Delaware. You remember that story? The surprise attack on Trenton, New Jersey. You remember the whole deal was that it had to be a total, total surprise. That was the only way it was going to work. In Trenton, New Jersey, were stationed a large contingent of Hessian soldiers, German soldiers that were paid by the British to fight in the Revolution. And it's in the middle of the winter, there's ice on the river, and nobody's expecting this. And Washington hatches this plan to cross the Delaware at night in the winter and attack. However, what most of us don't know is that the British learned of it and actually sent word to the Hessians who were in Trenton, New Jersey. They were, being, uh, they were uh, commanded by a, a man by the name of Colonel Rawl. Colonel Rawl was a German who really liked to play poker. Poker was his thing. And so on this particular night, he was engaged in a game of high-stakes poker with some of his staff. And he'd given specific instructions that he was not to be disturbed for anything. And a message comes from a British messenger saying that Washington is forming troops on the other side of the Delaware and crossing the Delaware. And the British messenger arrives, gives the message to Colonel Rawl. Colonel Rawl is, is, is rather peeved by the fact that he's been disturbed when he, was told not, when he left instructions not to be disturbed. So he takes the message and puts it in his vest pocket without reading it. The next morning, that message was found still in his vest pocket on his dead body. He received the truth. He failed to act upon it. And in his failure to act upon it and putting it off, disaster came upon him. And folks, it is the same way with the Word of God. When the Spirit of God speaks to us, that requires action now or it's taken away. I'm not saying that the Word of God itself is taken away because we know that the Word of God endures forever. I'm saying that the convicting activity of the Spirit as He's applying that to your heart, that doesn't last forever. Do you know why Scripture uses the metaphor that it uses for itself? You know the most common metaphor for Scripture in Scripture? is bread. I'm the bread of life. Man does not live by bread alone. Scripture often calls itself bread. You know what's true about bread? It is the most perishable thing in your kitchen. You leave that bread bag open for an hour and you may as well throw it out. The manna in the wilderness. What was the whole deal with the manna? It was only good for one day. It had to be used now because it couldn't be put on a shelf and used later. Folks, it's the same with this convicting activity of the Holy Spirit. I am convinced that a big reason why the church today is so weak and powerless is because we have the truth of God's Word and we haven't acted upon it. 
Like James says in James 1, verse 26, we're hearers of the Word only and not doers of the Word. And because we haven't acted upon it, it's taken away. There's a story that's told about Satan as he's training some new demons and about to send them out into the world to do their demonic work. And he has these three demons in training that have almost completed their training and is about to send them out into the world to do what they are to be sent to do. And he's giving them sort of one last test. And he's asking the demons how it is what they're going to do to deceive men and women. And he asked the first demon, and the, demon, the first demon says, well, I'm going to deceive men and women by telling them that there's no God. Satan says, You're going to, you'll deceive some like that, but not many. Because people know in their hearts that there is a God. He turns to the second one, and the second one says, I will deceive people by telling them there's no hell. Satan says, well, that'll, that'll deceive some also, but not many, because people, again, know instinctively in their heart that there is judgment coming for their sin. But then the third demon says, I will deceive people by telling them there is no hurry. You can act on what you know to be true tomorrow. You can act on what you know to be true next week. That thing in your life that God has told you He's not pleased with, you can act on that next month. And Satan says, go. Because that's a plan. When the Word of God comes to us, we must be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Or else the convicting power of God's Word is taken away. And what's left in its place is a heart that's a little bit harder than it was before, a little bit more callous than it was before, and finds rejection of God's direction a little bit easier than 